Welcome to another episode of The Greatest Pod, where we discuss and debate what makes something great. I'm Ron Swallow. I'm Ed Greer. And I am producer Bill. And today we are diving into the greatest comic book writers of all time. We've done a lot of talk about artists in the past. We've dived, we've dived deep on some of our favorites, and we're going to do more of that in the future. And we've obviously done a lot of work on our favorite comic book movies. But now let's go to the source, the minds that come up with our favorite stories for our favorite characters. And I feel like we should maybe put some parameters on this discussion. This is going to largely reflect what we ourselves have read and been exposed to. Um, And I, for one, probably have not read as much sort of indie stuff, you know, your Hernandez brothers, your Dan Klaus, et cetera, as I could have, or maybe should have. So I'm almost feeling like this is more of a talk about like superhero comics, but I don't know. What are you guys feeling? Well, you know, I mean, a lot of these people come out of the indie world. So a lot of their indie stuff informs the superhero comics that they write. And I think uh, talking about people like, you know, um, Dave Lapham, who has done like great work both in and out of the big two. He did Stray Bullets, which is a black and white like noir comic. That's really great. Uh, talking about, you know, your boy uh, Matt Wagner, who created uh, Grendel. The very fact that he created like five billion pages of comics, like he's up there with like Dave Sim or somebody as far as, you know, writing about a specific character that fucking much and ha- being, having that much success. You know, so there, there's a lot of people we could bounce around to, but um. Some of the older ones that I wanted to talk about, honestly, are people like Marv Wolfman, who did all those Teen Titans books. He's on yeah. my list for sure. Marv Wolfman is a bad man, Majama, dude. I think he brought a lot of, I don't want to say maturity, but definitely a heightened level of melodrama to team books. And I think his contribution was, it's close. He's like the Dominique Wilkins to Clarence, to Chris Claremont's Michael Jordan, as far as writing was- teen dynamics. I was going to say that I feel like Chris Claremont is really so synonymous with like the voice of soap operatic teen heroes, but Wolfman, you know, not only did a, did a long unbroken run on teen Titans, new teen Titans that everybody um, praises. I have not read a ton of it, but Wolfman was also the mind behind the original crisis on infinite earths. And he also co-wrote a lot of the Superman reboot with uh, John Byrne. Yeah, I mean that's uh, that's some credentials right there, uh, and they're really they're really well done. Like he's actually pretty good at funny moments too. Like like he he's pretty he's he pulls off some like it's definitely dramatic, but then there's also some real good like like moments where you actually laugh out loud uh, in the in the new two Teen Titans. Uh, it's a, it's a great balance of sort of drama, action, and comedy, which I think is sort of the, the staple of what we think of as like the soap operatic classic comic book, um, you know, almost in the tradition of something like Spider-Man, where it's not just somebody's beeping in my neighborhood, where it's not just like, you know, the daring do of, of your costumed hero, but it's equally as much about their personal lives and their, you know, everyday struggles as it is about fighting supervillains. And I think that that style of storytelling really kind of came of age there in the late seventies, early eighties. And Wolfman was as much as he's not like the first name on people's lips. When you talk about greatest writers, he wrote a shit ton of comics at, at like a very crucial time, especially for the mainstream. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's definitely kept the kept part of the league alive. You know, <laughs> I'm always yeah. making sports analogies for no reason. <laughs> no, but I mean, the other thing I want to credit to Wolfman is like he's created a bunch of stuff that lives to this day. Maybe you know it's expanded beyond his original scope, but like he created Blade. Um, he created uh, the the many of the characters in the new Teen Titans: Cyborg, Raven, Beast Boy. He created the Tim Drake Robin, you know, at a time when the Jason Todd thing was kind of fresh and and people didn't know, you know, what direction Batman was going to go after the death of Robin, like Marv Wolfman created Tim Drake. So it's like a lot of this stuff that's become, um, you know, just sort of a, a part of the history of some of our favorite characters. It started with this guy. And it's it's yep. interesting to me that like, he doesn't have the profile of even like a John Byrne or a Chris Claremont who also, you know, created a lot of the stuff we love because I, I would argue he's of equal importance. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I would argue he's uh, like one of those guys who's, uh, uh, you know, one of those guys that modern guys stand on the shoulders of as well. I, I think that's a great point. And I mean, even just the fact that he was the one who wrote Crisis on Infinite Earths, you could argue he was the creator of event comics. You know what I mean? Yeah. The, the the whole idea of the company-wide crossover started with this writer, for better or for worse. But I mean, I think everybody can agree that Crisis on Infinite Earths still stands amongst the best of the company-wide crossovers and again, it's just a matter of like he puts so much definitive shit on paper. Like he he deserves to be mentioned in the conversation. I think one other interesting thing about Wolfman is that he was part of that first generation of fans turned creators. Oh, yeah. Um, Wolfman began his career in the 60s and he was very active in the fanzine community before he ever got mainstream comics work and i think you know a lot of people might chalk that up as a detriment to his legacy um i'm a little bit more ambivalent i don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing but it certainly defines what comic book writing has become in the subsequent 60 years um yeah that fan turned professional. Well, there's another, one of the really early ones of those was, um, um, fuck now I'm blanking on his name. Roy Thomas, mm. Roy Thomas of those early, like weird Avengers stuff with like, you know, the, uh, um, the Goliath has like a halter top on and shit. You know what I mean? Some yeah, of those, yeah. some of those, some of that era of Avengers and stuff is written by Roy Thomas. Roy Thomas also, I think wrote a bunch of the Savage Sword of Conan's that I grew up on. Oh yeah. Like, uh, um, adapting L, L Sprague to camp and, and Robert E. Howard and so on and so forth. Uh, those stories into Conan stories, which John Buscema and Alfredo Alcala and Ernie Chan and Tony DeZuniga and so on and so forth illustrated man. That guy really had a mastery of both, you know, comic book. Hey, what are you doing here? Vision type of bullshit dialogue. And also like using Gary and dog, you swill the meat of the dead. You know what I mean? He could like do the all of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so yeah. I, I really just got to give it up to him. Uh, he you guys can uh, people can look up his bibliography. It's so huge. It's daunting. It's, it's gargantuan. 
It's, I mean, it's almost every great franchise, certainly in Mar- at Marvel, and he did mm-hmm. do a lot of work for DC. I mean, worth mentioning, um, co-creator of both Wolverine and Vision. So he's there, you know what I mean? Like that dude is there in the thick of it as Marvel is really cementing itself as the company it would become. And Mm -hmm. so again, like Wolfman, it's like, I think you take for granted a lot of the stuff that he laid down early on in that company's history. Yeah, I mean, oh. you know, I wonder how much money he got paid for for making Wolverine. <laughs> Probably a lot, right? He's, it's uh, $75.22 <laughs> American. <laughs> but uh, And so, he paid his rent for five months. <laughs> um, I do want to mention uh, a, another, um, I guess, like, since we're doing some older, like, I guess, big time people who had effects on comics. I want to also mention uh, Louise Simonson. Um, who uh, who worked on um, Man of Steel, also created um, Doomsday, um, uh, Cable, uh, and and stuff like that. And she worked on the New Mutants, and 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 really, you know, is considered one of the top uh, female um, writers of all time. So. I think that's a great one to bring up. Certainly of a different generation than Roy Thomas. Um, yeah, it's like a little after. Well, I mean, not only not just a little after. Like Louise Simonson actually was one of the really prolific writers of like the late '80s through the '90s. Yeah, and people forget that like when Rob Liefeld broke big, she was the writer on the New Mutants. Um, yeah. Fabian Nicieza, I know, came in there at some point, but like. Louise Simonson was Liefeld's original collaborator. And that was after she was coming off of stints, I believe working with like Art Adams um, and some of these really classic X X illustrators that like we revere to this day. Yeah. And her and her hubby launched um, X Factor, which was a big, you know, a big fucking deal. And them, they are the ones responsible for that. There's a viral video going around. Like I, I love content creators these days, just quick sidebar, because really what they do, I I think it's a little bit of what we do, but it's like quicker and dumber. So they'll be like, yes, the angel used to be really fucking weak. Really, bro. Yup. What happened? This chick named Louise something. She was like, fuck this shit, dog. He gotta have metal wings. Metal wings? Yup. Yep. And it's just like that the, that's the video. <laughs> and it's like, what the fuck, man? But anyway, <laughs> I saw one of those and it was it did remind me that yeah, her and Walter really did take over um X Factor with um the express intent to make both Iceman, I do believe Hank, and um Warren Worthington, uh, i.e. the angel, better characters, more powerful characters, more in line with the mutants that were created after them. You know what I mean? Because they really paled in comparison to some of the cool, the Wolverines, the storms, the Colossus, Colossi, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you know, feather wings and being able to fly, but not do much else. Right. That great. Right. You know. It was honestly, it was sort of the progenitor of a lot of what you saw happen in the 90s, where suddenly, you know, everything had to be more badass and sleeker and sharper and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But I think all the negative connotations of that stuff is a result of people sort of learning the wrong lessons from what she did, you know, kind of Mm -hmm. in the mid to late 80s. 
where mm-hmm. it really was injecting kind of a new life and a new point of view into a lot of these more tired characters or more tired franchises. And suddenly you come in and it's like, hey, man, what if we do this crazy shit? I mean, I, I believe Louise Simonson either created or co-created Apocalypse or wrote some of those original stories because that was the whole impetus for Angel turning from Angel to Archangel was that mm-hmm. he became one of the four horsemen of Apocalypse. Mm-hmm. I do believe that's the case, yeah. Yeah, and then Apocalypse went on to play a big role in like the origin of X-Force and Cable and all that. I don't know. It, it's all, it all weaves together. Essentially, that whole extension of the X brand, um, she was one of the architects of it. Oh, and really quickly, I just want to give her a couple props. I know we we, we vowed off air not to be like, well, remember when this happened? Or remember when that happened? <laughs> but I think in the realm of what she contributed was she was very good. She was she did the um, soap opera stuff very well. And the stuff that keeps the um, monthly reader coming back to see the progress of certain aspects of the story. She did that very well. And one of the things she did in X Factor with um, Hank somehow some way he kept coming up with funky ass shit like every single day Uh, (laughs) now somehow some way he got um fucked up basically and every time he used his super strength his intelligence went down Mm. so he had to like think ironically enough before he used his strength and his abilities and shit and as he got dumber the team was like ah we failed him we had to lift that pillar off of us and now he he can't do science anymore you know what i mean and he as he got dumber it was like this flowers for algernon and you like felt for hank because that was one of the things he prided himself on he had all this outsized mutant power now his superhuman strength went way up but Again, every time he used it, it went up and his brain power went down. And I just thought that was really arresting. It was one of the first times I really gave a shit about Hank, to tell you the truth. I really thought That's, Hank yeah. was boring until their run. Yep. And I thought Angel was and I thought Iceman was. They they had to put a belt on Iceman or else he would freeze the fucking world because his powers <laughs> went haywire, too. Just to, just to be clear, when you say Hank, you're talking about Hank McCoy Beast, right? Yeah, Hank McCoy uh, the Beast. Yes. Okay. Yeah. You know, cool, his cool. buddy Hank. Yeah, dude, I do yeah. that. For, hey, you know my my girl, uh, you know, my girl my, Ellen. You know Ripley, you know. Ellen Ripley. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it happens, man. Yeah. Um, the other thing I want to mention too is that you know, in that period of time when um, when Wheezy, as as those <laughs> in the know lovingly refer to Louise Simonson, was writing the X books. She was also a part of all of these crazy crossovers that are largely remembered as being the brainchild of Chris Claremont. But she was writing, you know, half the issues of any of these, you know, the the Fall of the Mutants, the Mutant Massacre, um, Extinction Agenda, Inferno. Like, that's all stuff that she was a, a, a big contributing writer to. And then goes on in the 90s when she joins DC to be one of the architects of the whole death and return of Superman storyline. So, mm, like, right. this is somebody, again, much like we talked about with Marv Wolfman, isn't normally remembered as being like, oh, my God, this is a person who crafted these seminal storylines. But it was because, like, she I, I guess it was because she just sort of showed up and was one of those bullpen players. But, like, she was really involved in a lot of big shit. Well, I think, you know, I think also they came at a time when comics started when you like it was just before. I mean, they still were writing during this time, but it was just before you got your your Liefelds, your your McFarlane's, your your Mm -hmm. guys who became, you know, your Claremont's, your your guys who became almost like. 
don't want to say household names, but kind of like that for comic books. And and she missed that rock star moment, those rock star moments. And I think Marvin and 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 her and probably some uh, a few other people as well missed out on those rock star '90s moments where people were like, you know, able to buy a house uh, and 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 live a good life. <laughs> well, I mean, I I think it. She's you know, the, all those people you mentioned are sort of a casualty of the fact that that image generation of creators coincided with the the speculation boom which yep. puts so much importance on the artist as the person selling the books as the person really bringing all the creative energy to the books that's a good point that writers really got sidelined as far as being you know somebody with a with name value yeah, um, unless you were doing both yeah and yeah i i would agree but i mean i think even then your your importance was way more about your art than it was your writing and yep. it's like she's of a generation that sort of had the misfortune of falling in between, you know, the real heyday of Chris Claremont or even like um, Denny O'Neill with with Neil Adams at D.C., where it was really a writer driven medium. And then sort of the resurgence of it being a writer driven medium, you know, with the British guys sort of taking control of mainstream comics where you got Warren Ellis, Grant Morrison, guys like that coming in at the tail end of the 90s into the 2000s. Louise Simonson, her heyday was really as guys like Liefeld and McFarlane and Jim Lee took off. And so, yeah, it's just it's just kind of bad timing. Yeah, she deserves – I'm glad we're talking about her because she deserves some props. And same with Marv. Well, yeah, and one person I did want to bring up, as long as we're talking about her, one of her good friends, uh, Miss Annie Nocenti, she calls her Annie, Ann Nocenti. Mm -hmm. Uh, Look, Ann Nocenti, I remember watching a a documentary like fucking 15 years ago of Ann Nocenti sitting on a a, a, a couch with Chris Claremont and them talking, and it was so crazy how editorial was like a big family back then. Like Ann Nocenti and editorial, Wheezy and editorial, and Chris Claremont just kicked it in tents with flashlights under their fucking chins a lot of times, <laughs> making all these seminal comics. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. They were like buddies telling each other stories. And that shit was just really cool. And Ann Nocenti came out of a real training of like, hey, can you type? Here you go. And then osmosis over time of learning the form, because uh, I think she was a filmmaking person. And she just learned the form, and then she she did uh, one of her first books that she wrote. She created fucking Longshot and mm, worked with shit. with Art Adams. So you talk yep. about somebody who missed out on that shit. Art Adams is a, just real quick artist sidebar. He was he inspired all the image guys who got paid biting him. Right. Yeah. Meanwhile, you know what I'm saying. He barely got in on it a little bit with the legendary imprint, and you know he does cover shit. He's very rich. He's doing great, and he's drawing exactly what he wants to do. And he doesn't have a monthly grind, and his career is great. I am just saying he's not he inspired people who are way richer than him because he also came in at a weird se- a section of time. But like Anna Sinti did uh, that long shot. She did X-Men stuff. She also did um, giant run on Daredevil with uh, John Romita Jr. Introducing characters like Typhoid Mary, adding uh, new layers to the Kingpin la- relationship, which I thought might be impossible since, yeah. you know, all of the stuff that Frank Miller did. So her even being able to do anything with the Kingpin after Frank Miller is a big boon, you know, to her. I think she was she, wasn't she the direct successor to Miller on Daredevil. I think uh, I think they had some filler issues and stuff because they even had like Denny O'Neill write some and all kind of oh, shit. Wow, okay. And uh, 
and uh, some Harlan Ellison issues and shit. There, <laughs> there, there's a lot of uh, different uh, Daredevil stuff going on for a little while. But yeah, she came in and had, I think, the second, probably a longer run than him when you count all the comics. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. All the people that we've talked about so far, and maybe this is something kind of worth thinking about too, they all started as writers and really continued as writers, but they all became editors. Yep. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. Marv Wolfman, longtime editor at DC. Roy Thomas was literally the second editor in chief at Marvel after Stan Lee stepped down. Mm-hmm. Um, both Wheezy and Ann Nascenti became Marvel editors. Um, you know, either God, Louise Simonson may have started as an editor and then became a writer. Yeah, I think both of yeah. them did. But and it yeah. also it does flow both ways because, like, you know, um, I think Claremont didn't start as an editor because they just wouldn't hire him as one at the mm-hmm. time. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? So he ended up starting as a writer. But I think a lot of the people we're going to talk about, if we don't mention it, I think a lot of them, if they don't come from indie comics, they come from either editing or the art department or some shit. You know what I mean? See, they, they, I, you know, I, my, my whole point in bringing that up is like, that's sort of a career path that's been lost in the modern yeah. day. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like there used to be, that sort of training ground of like, all right, kid, we'll bring you in. You'll be an assistant editor. You'll learn the business of comics. Um, And like, that just doesn't happen as much. Like the editors now are really more executives first and foremost, which is not to say that they're not talented. Like there's a lot of really great editors who know how to manage a line and pick the right talent and keep everything working, working right. But like back in the day, there was a really blurred line between your writers and your editors and they did have more of that camaraderie where, like you said, it'd be like Louise, Walter Simonson, and Nascenti all just staying up till all hours of the night craft and half the line of Marvel Comics, you know? So it's it's an interesting shift in the industry that I think is worth noting as we get into talking about some of these later generations of great writers. Um, I do want to bring up another uh, another. Uh, uh, I guess, yeah, he's definitely an older guy. And he's also one of the guys that, like, literally – all the movies that we have been watching probably wouldn't exist today without him. And that's uh, Jim Starlin. See, I don't, this is going to be our first controversy because I definitely okay. have a list. I also, I have a list of non greatest writers. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I don't know. But okay. Like, look, Jim, Jim Starlin has written some, some seminal stuff. I, you know, but but you're thinking that people did better work off of what he just kind of did. Maybe. I I just don't I I don't know like the only Jim Starlin comic that I've ever read and gone goddamn that's a good comic was actually the death of Jason Todd. Yeah. Um, I think when Jim Starlin starts writing line wide crossover, you know, starting with the Infinity Gauntlet or, or whatever they yeah. call, I think it was called the Infinity Gauntlet originally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like that never grabbed me. It it just so oh. much of his stuff reads like bashing action figures together. <laughs> I mean, I guess you're right. I mean, that's kind of You don't of have what... to agree with me. I'm just saying that's my take on, on Jim Starlin. Yeah. I mean, Infinity War is a little bit of that. It's like, hey, get everybody together, have them fight some bad guys. But I really like it. So I guess <laughs> I guess I fell for it on that one. Well, I think I think we 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 don't really remember how like 
introducing cosmic jazz was very much like in our last episode, we discussed Marlon Brando, Marlon Brando, basically introducing naturalism to movies in the modern age blew everybody's mind. And he was like, yo, Swarlin was like, these comics are, are good for the time, but they are about these highfalutin concepts like Thanos wanted to fuck death and blah, blah. And people just got blown away by the fact that like, Comics could be cosmic in a distinctly not Kirby way. I think well, Starlin is definitely not cosmic in the Kirby way. Right. And maybe that's sort of what turns me off about it is like, yeah, it is so anti Kirby. And he ends up working with so many concepts and characters created by Kirby. And I don't know, man, it's like, like we've talked about at length, Kirby, for all of his deficiencies as a script writer, Kirby's mind was really plugged into just another level of thinking about like the great powers of the universe and like, what does it mean to be human? And it always, to me, it always just feels like Jim Starlin stuff is like, what if a bunch of aliens had a fucking war that could destroy everything? And like, sounds dope. I don't know. It's, to me, it misses the point. <laughs> a little bit. It's, it's I just, get, it's I get thin. you. It's there. You're, you're right. It isn't, it does lack a little bit of depth, but it is fun. So I guess and it's also widescreen comics for the time. What was interesting is when he illustrated it, it never got as widescreen as it could get because he well, had yeah. certain limitations as an illustrator. Uh, so it was like, it's all this highfalutin cosmic concepts, but we're sitting on a rock in space. You know what I mean? It's like all this highfalutin concepts, like fucking, uh, and it was a weird, there was a, there's a weird, uh, writer, uh, writer, artist group of people who have good concepts and basic, good basic figure work. But they don't have very much dynamism. Dan Jurgens, in my mind, is one of those. Sure. sure. Dan Jurgens might come up on a lot of people's lists as a great writer. He wrote so many seminal, um, along with Wheezy, Wheezy and a lot of people doing the uh, Death of Superman, Return of Superman, yep. pioneering that sort of jazz. Did a lot of Superman comics beyond that. Did a lot of comics, period. Boy, him and Doomsday fighting on a patch of alley like they're the fucking Jets and the Sharks. Yeah, just sucks. It's like so highfalutin, but when you look at it, it's like you have to read the captions to get the majesty. Because if you look at the goddamn pictures, they might as well be fighting at a fucking phone booth. Starlin and Jurgens have this disease that they both are that to me. That's a good point because, like, I think about like you're right when I think about the uh, the words where they hit each other so hard that buildings ten miles away have their windows explode Mm -hmm. and instead of showing a great drawing of that (laughs) you have to read the caption of that so i guess that's a good point and i also think about like one of the things that was great in the again dc animated version of this is when he punches uh uh when when doomsday punches superman like as hard as he clearly can punch and a huge wave of of power comes off of it and shatters buildings and stuff that gives you the visual that you needed to get across the, the, how Titan the whole thing is. Um, yeah, well that's also, that's something that comic book art can and should also do. Like you I was going to say to be animated. Yes. A hundred percent. There's plenty of great, <laughs> there's plenty of great moments for that. And I didn't even, I've never even thought about that until you pointed it out, Ed. So well, it's also also one thing's made in an assembly line and one thing's made in a longer assembly line. 
Well, so we right. have to give if we have to give that credit to, you know, sure. uh, but, but yeah, so Starlin, I think I think without disrespecting on any level, but just being very honest about his his abilities, I believe he's a pioneer. But like a lot of pioneers, he just had a gut full of worms and he was lost sometimes. No, you know what I mean? I mean? We, you know, we're going like, to build a statue regardless, but. 100%. <laughs> no, 100%. And, and I think that's actually a, as grim a metaphor as that is. I think that's actually a really good metaphor because I like I do believe he wrote the death of Captain Marvel, right? That was yes. Jim Starlin. Yes. So that's the first graphic novel Marvel ever published. Somehow Jim Starlin talks Marvel into publishing an original graphic novel and he kills one of the main characters. It's also kind of a weird story because like, doesn't he, it's like Captain Marvel dies of cancer, I think. Yep. And it's a whole thing about him like dying in a hospital bed and like, I don't know, man. And it's the same thing. I think it's about a big Cos- swing. Uh, it's is it that's the thing like it's just i mean it's taking a chance because like i mean if you think about taking a chance that's a taking a chance moment because in comic books having someone die of cancer is not exactly the greatest idea in theory for sure right i mean it's a big swing but if you don't pull off that swing well I'd, i'd say it's trying to contribute to that sort of um maturity that would come with you know alan moore basically having them perform depraved sex acts on each other and 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 be really mean and racist and this and that it's like a precursor of that like your hero could die of something as banal as cancer you know what i mean i think he introduced if we're talking about people who introduce maturity to comics trying to fuck death and your hero dying of cancer are pretty mature you know on some level that's totally fair and like i I don't want to denigrate him as somebody who is a bit of an innovator for the industry, for sure. And I guess for me, I don't know. Like I said, I think his work on Batman actually stands out more to me than any of this stuff that we're talking about with Marvel Cosmic. I agree. Um, Just because I think he he's able to get more emotionality and more relatable stakes into something on the level of Batman you know, not only Death in the Family, he also wrote The Cult. Batman yeah. The Cult was Batman Jim Starlin. Yeah. So yep. it's like his propensity to come up with sort of outrageous ideas, they were better executed when he wasn't trying to write on a canvas as big as the universe. I guess that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I agree. My fa- my favorite thing he wrote was, um, I think he wrote that uh, that issue. Remember that time? Uh, he wrote that. He wrote that issue where basically Robin, the Jason Todd Robin, throws this diplomat son out a window because the diplomat son had sexually violated some chick, and he was not going to get prosecuted because of diplomatic immunity. So Robin caught him and chased him, but knew from their previous encounter that he wasn't really going to face justice. And then when Batman gets there, Jason Todd's just standing on the ledge, and the, the guy has fallen hella miles to his death. <laughs> He's already uh-huh. smashed on the pavement, and Batman's like, "What the fuck happened?" And Homeboy's like, "He slipped." Let's go jump in the ride, get some hoagies. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm saying. You know what? Yeah, I, yeah. I like it. I, I have not read that issue, but just based on your description, that is more compelling to me than you know his, than the other stuff we've talked about. That's all. That's all I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Cool. Um, and then I guess we should bring up Kirby. I mean, obviously he's an artist and a writer, but if we're going to talk about Starlin and some cosmic stuff, we got to bring up Kirby. Yeah, and I think, I mean, in a totally different way, I sort of feel like 
Kirby fits that same mold that I'm saying with Starlin, where it's like he didn't do enough well enough to be considered like a great writer. But yeah. obviously, Kirby is like a phenomenal innovator as a creator of characters, as a creator of concepts. Like, Kirby is almost untouchable. I don't know that, like, his prose and, like, the level of his drama is greatest of all time material. Yeah. Um, but you cannot, I mean, you can't beat Kirby's inventiveness. Like, yeah. it, the list is longer than anybody's arm in terms of, like, all the crazy shit that he introduced in the pages of his comics. And just, I, I just say, well, as far as him being on, on a writer list, I think it is oddly appropriate that give give that we give him sort of short shrift because but he was a great collaborator and i think that's kind of lost in this who did what and he didn't do this that well and blah blah comics are a fucking grind mill you know what mm. i'm saying uh comics are like you know when you when you buy uh salt and pepper in the same jar <laughs> you know it's just like fuck it throw them together and get it done yeah. and so i really think that um you notice that the I think somebody is uh, somebody smarter than me stated uh, Jack Kirby's not a great writer, but if you look at the comics that Stan Lee wrote, mm -hmm. the ones he wrote, wrote that Jack Kirby drew are better than the ones when he when that's not the case when he's working oh, yeah. without Jack. And so that means what Jack is doing in the seams of making the story move and making people's uh, motivations known, even just in drawing form really helped stand out and Stan even admits that I just looked at the pictures and wrote words in their mouths. You know what I mean? A lot of oh, times. And, and I mean, I'll, I'll co-sign that completely. W one really great exercise. If you're trying to sort of understand the delineation between writer artist and how that Marvel method works, go back and look at those first hundred issues of fantastic four. They've been collected in a number of omnibuses that Marvel has published over the past, you know, couple decades. Um, this is Kirby essentially writing the story in pictures and then Stan Lee coming in and filling in dialogue and captions based on what he's reading for the first time that Kirby has done. And it's wild how superfluous 90% of that dialogue really is. Like if you just look at those panels in those Fantastic Four issues, you don't need most of what Stan Lee wrote because the story is all there in the pictures. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad I'm, I'm glad we I, I wanted to at least talk about it. I know we've done a bigger, you know, we've covered new gods and 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 Kirby. So, you know, we don't need to do yeah. the exhaustive thing. But what we did is Jack Kirby the greatest. And they could they could listen to that episode. We definitely wax rhapsodic. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so. A couple of people before we move into maybe more modern guys, a couple of people I want to bring up. Um, thankfully, this guy's been getting more credit in recent years. But Bill Finger, who is oh, now yeah, rightfully yeah. co-created or co-credit or credited as the co-creator of Batman with Bob Kane, um, and even Jerry Robinson is maybe worth a special mention. But like, it's now on record that pretty much everything that we associate with this modern conception of Batman, from the Batcave to the Batmobile to the Bat Signal to Robin to you know the the sort of skeleton of the classic Batman story of commissioner Gordon discovering something gruesome, calling in Batman for help, Batman doing his greatest detective shtick and coming across some sort of freakish monster who then gets locked up in Arkham asylum. Like that was all invented by bill finger. 
<laughs> I, I don't even have anything else to say. I, you know, it's well, one of those. And things. what's what was the documentary? Searching for Bill. What, what, what was the? Uh, oh man, there's uh, a documentary about Bill Finger. It's, it's uh, on like I think it's Hulu. called I've Been Fingered. Yes, that's what no, it no. is. That's a uh, that's something else, Ron. You that's just comes up on your internet search <laughs> when you fingering search fingering Batman. Um, no. <laughs> fingering Batman. That was a yeah, yeah. uh, that was a more recent production. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, hey, what, what? Hey, you ain't talking about prep time now, huh? <laughs> <laughs> but it's worth. I mean, it's all worth bringing up. Yes, Ed, there is that documentary, which is phenomenal. And it's all worth bringing up because I think at a time when comics were really simplistic and would generally just be eight page self-contained stories about, you know, beating up some gangsters, um, not to shortchange anybody, but that's kind of what it was in those gold in the golden age. Bill Finger was really writing some, you know, dime store novel worthy little mystery adventures in these early Batman comics, right down to like the first appearance of the Joker and sort of, you know, everything that still makes that character compelling was there in the first issue that they introduced that character. Like Mm -hmm. as much as he's had a thousand different interpretations, the core of the character is there from page one. Yeah. That's pretty impressive because when when was Bill Finger writing that? In the forties. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah. Well, and also in, in that lineage of like uh, going to oh, did you have another oldster, Bill? Well, I I wanted to mention a couple guys. Um, one more well known as an artist is Wally Wood, and then a frequent collaborator at EC Comics, Al Feldstein. Those were two of the guys who were some of the more prolific um, writers at EC during their real heyday before they got shut down literally by congressional hearings, um, which is a whole story in and of itself that we don't need to get into. But like at one point in time coming out of the golden age, EC comics was like bigger than both DC and what would become Marvel, which was at that time sort of a third rate publisher but EC was king of the comics world and Mm -hmm. what they were doing with like romance and crime and horror comics was revolutionary. And like, as much as you can read superhero comics from the golden age and be like, God, this is just some simplistic bullshit. You read EC comics from those times and they hold up to this day. I mean, it is compelling, surprising, inventive writing. Um, knee deep in genre tropes. And, and I just think it's worth mentioning. I don't think, you know, Wally Wood, I think was probably ultimately a better artist than a writer. And Al Feldstein isn't necessarily remembered as one of the greats alongside all the other guys we're probably going to be mentioning, but as two of the premier talents for EC during that, you know, good couple of years when they were at the top of the industry, those guys turned out some amazing comics. Mm, cool. Absolutely, and um, along and those I, lines, I, you know, I was just gonna say, along those lines, we could also mention Art Spiegelman, who, like, oh, besides oh, Mouse, yes. I, I, gonna... I can't really talk to all of this other shit. But like, Mouse is a big enough. If he just did Mouse and didn't do anything else, which is not the case, he did a lot of other stuff. But right. if he just did that and vamped, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, uh, like Orson Welles of comics or something, that would be a great Titanic achievement. Yeah, the yeah, Art Spiegelman should definitely be on there. Um, Mouse is incredible, and it made a bunch of um, uh, rednecks unhappy. So, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So as we shifted to what, like, I guess the... One more, though, that I... Yeah. 
before I sorry to interrupt, but I think this is the old guy that I think I, and I have to admit, I don't know if I've read too much of him, uh, but just a few of them is Will Eisner. I mean, well, Will Eisner, I, I, I wanted to get into because Will there's Eisner, a whole award named after the dude. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Will Eisner is one that deserves to be on any, you know, top 10 list alongside any number of other guys. Will Eisner arguably created the format of the graphic novel um, and then just did amazing things within that format, revolutionized comic strips and really comic books with the spirit. Um, his contract with God trilogy, which, which I have read is unbelievable and also really a template for the type of comics that we would get, you know, that gave us stuff like mouse Um where it was more personal and harrowing and emotional and not just centered on sort of pulp storytelling. Eisner sort of showed you could do that in comics. And Mm -hmm. like, if for nothing else, that's amazing. But he also, I mean, he did so much in the medium. Yep. That that's a that's a great addition. I can't believe it's about to gloss over him. But also, uh, check out Ebony White. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> well, well, you know, <laughs> no, I, that doesn't just that doesn't slander the rest of all of his contributions. And I would also like to bring up his um, instructional books about Ooh. comics and the making of comics are Scott McCloud level books, you know, but from somebody who made way better and more comics than scott mcleod so it's like very practical hands-on but also zen in the art of motorcycle maintenance with how he explains how to do comics it's even if you don't like even if you don't want to be a cartoonist looking at how will eisner explains his thought process behind comics i'd also recommend reading um it's a book i think uh, eisner interviews miller or something like that it's like eisner mm. and miller are the main people in the book it's about so fat and it's literally them just it's it's a book about them talking to each other over years so you get to see frank miller in his in his cups you know and his dark knight puffery talking to somebody he obviously revered and talking to him as he's about to do the sin city comics after he's done the first batch of sin city comics and will eisner's reacting to them and it's a great book about like uh his relationship to modern at that time cartooning since he was such a pioneer, it's instructive and interesting to see him talk to a modern day, you know, master of it like Miller, who he saw as a young buck, if you get what I'm saying. Well, for sure. And I, I mean, I think that that is um, a peanut butter and chocolate level pairing because Miller is arguably the next guy in comics who could really do what Eisner did in so much as being as good if not better a writer than he was an artist and he was a phenomenal artist you know that's something we talked about jack kirby who really didn't become a writer artist in the true sense of the word until late in his career and even then had some deficiencies will eisner was firing on all cylinders in the entire cartoon and creative process from the beginning and what and really it should also be stated the beginning for eisner was like pre-Superman. I mean, he was working on funny animal comics back in the 30s before superheroes even became a thing. He was one of the top cartoonists during the heyday of the Golden Age, and he continued to be one of the top guys working in the field through the 90s. I mean, it's just, it's incredible the fact that like 
this guy never peaked. You know what I mean? And it, yeah. I don't think it really was until Frank Miller came into his own that you had another guy that you were just like, holy shit, this guy just fires on all cylinders. I don't know if he's a better writer, artist. Plus, he's coming up with all this shit that nobody's ever seen before. He's telling stories in a totally different way. He's experimenting with his art styles. Like, that is a very rarefied few guys in comics. And Eisner was, without question, the first guy to be that thing. Yeah. So I'm, yeah, glad we talked about him. And, you know, we're, uh, we're getting, we've, we've hit a, a pretty decent amount of, uh, of the, I guess, golden age uh, writers and uh, probably up into the silver age as well. Uh, is there anybody else before we move on to later uh, and probably what is going to be uh, uh, episode two of the, the greatest writers uh, of all time? Um Anybody else you want to mention and bring up? I wanted to kind of get into it about some of these guys that were really seminal in our childhoods. Guys okay. like specifically Chris Claremont and John Byrne. And I'm okay. gonna I'm gonna maybe throw it at you guys um, because I know that like that is square in the wheelhouse of when you were really into reading comics. Where do you think those guys, those guys in particular, or anybody else of that generation? rank in this in this idea of who is the greatest of all time okay well i want to talk about something it's it's going to be a metaphor of it uh, one of the things that scientists love to talk about is who the greatest scientific mind of all time was if you're doing physics you start with it's it's einstein though everybody knows it's einstein but einstein would tell you that he was building off of what newton did of course. You see, what, you see what I'm saying? Of course, but and, everybody and so, else would say it's Einstein. Exactly. And so I love Claremont, and I don't know if there's a way to – I because here's the thing about Claremont, and, and you guys know that I'm not always great with, with uh, knowing who did this or who did that. But whenever I'm like, oh, I love this storyline where Cyclops does this and then uh, – uh, uh, Jubilee does this. It's like, oh, you mean that Claremont run? <laughs> and, and so, like, almost everything that I ever enjoyed uh, in that period of time is is written a decent amount by Claremont. So, yeah, I think you know, uh, Burn is an interesting bird because Burn was. I think you can see that there were Claremont did a whole run. But there were definitely people he worked better with where like more dynamic, sure. powerful stuff came out. So him and Byrne almost as like Byrne being like, oh, cut some of these words. This is dumb. <laughs> like that pushback. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Where like Chris Claremont wasn't some grand old man of comics to John Byrne. He's this no, fucking little gnome down the hall kicking it with the broads in the fucking office, playing under the covers, talking shit, and then comes out with a mimeograph. Or, you know what I'm saying? It comes out with a memo of fucking, <laughs> what's those shits? It's like a dot matrix printer. You got yeah, a dot yeah, matrix yeah. printer, a bunch of pages, and gives them to me, and I got to draw this shit. And it's like, he, he really knew, John Byrne, that is, knew what was dynamic from story as well as pictures. And I think he just that initial run that they did is still some of the greatest X-Men comics. And it's not just because old fogies love them, because I read them as back issues. I had definitely read more Mark Silvestri 
uh, X Men comics than goddamn old Burn You're comics. Right. But when but when they started making the classic X Men sell alongside the newer X Men comics, so you could see where the X Men had been, and I started seeing this Burn shit. It was like this is a dumb metaphor, and it's only for our fans. But like, it's like what the kids are going to see when they do a Transformers that isn't so busy. Mm. It was like I, me look going from this hyper modern, everybody's biting Art Adams to a certain degree, art style. They're going back to the sleek lines of Burn. It was like a breath of fresh air for me. His, I love Mark Silvestri's uh, uh, Colossus. Lord knows I do, but Burn's Colossus is just, you know what I mean? It's just there was something about it. But then, so when he started making his own comics and he started doing Fantastic Four. That shit was a love letter to Kirby and Stan, and he was really trying hard to get back to what they were doing. And I think I don't, I don't know that I had seen somebody who was a fan of comics that was also a great artist that was also someone who knew what comics could do. I don't think his scripting was like the greatest or anything, but mm-hmm. like his storytelling instincts were amazing, making Sue super powerful. Making uh, Ben Grimm not such a sad sack, but more of a, like a real mascot guy, you know, a real the guy who who we look through the stories with. Making Johnny into this like almost tragic figure who kept getting into these doomed romances. He was always, you know, always a bridesmaid. You know what I'm saying? Even though he was the hottest <laughs> guy in the world, you know what I mean? That's burn <laughs> shit. That's burn yeah. shit. You That's know true. what I mean? So, and some of those tropes have lasted to this day. You know, when they finally do us that Fantastic Four movie, it'll have almost as much burn in is it in it as it does Stan and Jack. I'd agree with that. I mean, I I think Burn's interesting. Look, we did an entire episode of Frank Miller versus John Byrne, who's the greatest. Um, and so that gets into it in a lot more detail. I think Byrne is also working in that tradition of Will Eisner, of you know, he's doing both things at a super high level. I just have always felt that, yeah, he's – I'm not even going to say not inventive enough because he he is, but it also has that tinge of sort of fan fidelity. It doesn't have oh, yeah. the sort of he's, audaciousness of – He's a company both, man. Yeah, of Eisner or Frank Miller. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, it's hard to not talk about John Byrne just because – between, yeah, co-plotting and drawing a lot of those X-Men issues with Claremont, writing and drawing Fantastic Four. That's um, a good point. You know, getting into writing and drawing Superman, uh, the man of the whole Man of Steel reboot. Um, what else? He he was on Avengers for a while, or was he not? I don't No, he was on he was on he took over West Coast Avengers. West he did Coast probably Avengers three of the greatest Hulk issues ever all in mm-hmm. a row that with the Hulk buster guys chasing him and shit like that. And, and uh, that's the issue where he's like holding Iron Man over his head and punching Wonder Man in the face. And the other <laughs> Avengers are all scattered about. It's like, damn dude, he's housing these fools. Yeah. yeah he mean, also worked on she Hulk. Yeah, oh, yeah. So that's another thing. All of that, all of that wicked at the camera shit. That's all him. He did that. And he started that in fantastic four where he had like, then meet God and God was Jack Kirby. And also he had, uh, he, he sometimes had himself and his editors in the comic because they were doing supposedly the Marvel universe version of the fantastic four shit like that. But yeah, that she Hulk stuff, that's him. He yeah. did that shit. All that, all that break of the fourth wall. That's him. And I think as, as we sort of wind down this conversation about, you know, call it the 
the first generation of truly great comics writers, one of the things that's worth thinking about or talking about is how they paved the way for kind of the more literary, inventive writers that we've come to associate with comics in the 21st century. You know, going from something as simplistic as most of those Golden Age stories up through the Stanley soap opera and then into these 70s and 80s guys who really allowed comics to be a more adult medium for better or for worse. I do think Chris Claremont, John Byrne, and Frank Miller are probably the three guys on the top of that list of like who turned comics on their ear in that way. No, absolutely. And yeah, I think I think this is a good place to stop because I think Claremont bridges into the new crop of guys. Mm. Right after Claremont's kicked off of, of X-Men is when all the nouveau uh, avant-garde shit really starts to happen. Obviously, Alan Moore shows up before that, but we're going to eschew that. Uh, we're going we're gonna to look at basically the people like Alan Moore having an opportunity happened after Claremont, right. you know what I'm saying? So right. uh, he's he's a good uh, line of demarcation. I do think we should wind down with him. The main thing about Claremont that I think that we can try to put in a nutshell from a giant career, we might even do a whole episode on him later, or, yeah. or at least an episode on, on the run. A thing that I love about him is they the X-Men really lived in a, in a world. <laughs> we live <laughs> in a society. Uh, the X-Men the really lived in an actual i mean you read an x-men comics and a demon will show up you read an x-men comics they'll go to outer space they'll take a demon with them to outer space and then they'll go to the microverse from outer space with this demon who teaches them to go to another dimension it's like and it all is germane it's like the the mutantdom and the mutants fighting each other and blah blah that was great but claremont really wanted to show okay these guys are mutants and they have their mutant problems but if these guys are just a band of people out in the world dealing with people who uh, – even Genosha to a certain extent is outside of their incestuous mutantdom because that's sure. just a group of people somewhere else who abuse mutants. So now they have a new quest or a new bunch of people to fear or whatever. But it was almost like them as a band of people, one with finger gun lasers, Dazzler, one with hollow bones doing flips, one with adamantium bones and claws, one with eye beams, and they're just these road warriors – that Australian section of Chris Claremont's run mm-hmm. is like my favorite shit of all time. It's it's like my favorite shit. And it's just like anything to get them out of that mansion, anything to get them out of their incestuous squabbles with Magneto and such. Any stories where he got them away from all of that, I think that's his major contribution. That the X-Men were still the X-Men without being on Grey Malkin Drive, without flying around in a jet, without whatever situation he put them in, they were still the fucking X-Men. I think that's a huge contribution that he made. It's funny how much that also sounds like he really took the concept of the shared universe and turned it into something more tangible. Mm. It's, you know, it's not just walk on appearances by Spider-Man in a fantastic four comic. It's literally like, Hey, mutant powers and sort of the sci-fi political ramifications of that coexist in a world with, demons and magic and sometimes the two things will intermingle and oh by the way there's also aliens and they're going to have an interest in those things going on and i feel like even talking about it that sounds totally unwieldy 
And like, it's just a recipe for gobbledygook. And the fact that he was able to balance it as deftly as he did is definitely huge points in Claremont's favor. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I, and I think also a dismount we could do as we talk about Claremont. Who do you think is your Claremont artist? Because I love me some burn, but it's not long enough. I think for me and my oh, generation, man. it's got to be it's got to be Silvestri and Lee, I guess. But I don't want to be a basic bitch. I'll leave Lee for somebody. To me, it's Silvestri. I love the way he drew every single character. They're all eighteen heads high, including Wolverine. I didn't give a fuck. Like <laughs> uh, his his rogue was beautiful. His you know he just really did. A, I think his anatomy was better than Jim Lee's. Full stop. Um, sure. So oh. you know what I mean. Like I mean all the all the image guys looked up to Mark Silverstreet's uh, draftsmanship. I don't, I don't think any of them thought that they were better than just like those, the, the number of people who will say that they're better than Adam Hughes now is like zero. You, right. know what I mean? you yeah. just kind of acknowledge that certain guys are just the best at the draftsmanship part. You can say, maybe you can draw with more dynamism than them. You could do this or that, the other, but like Silvestri's draftsmanship was amazing. Uh, so yeah, I think that's my guy. Uh, Silvestri with a dose of Paul Smith. Those Paul Smith issues are real good, baby. Listen, real X-Men fans know uh, how Paul Smith does it for you. And not being a real X-Men fan, I can't even speak to that. But I do know that real X-Men fans appreciate Paul Smith. Mm -hmm. I'll be the basic bitch and just claim Jim Lee in this conversation. I I really started reading X-Men comics as Chris Claremont was about to be forced out of them. So mm. I don't have that long history with, you know, the different eras that Claremont took the team through, which is probably also why the X-Men has never been one of my top franchises. You know, I always associate Chris Claremont with those first three issues of the adjectiveless X-Men drawn by Jim Lee, where Magneto is establishing a new civilization on Asteroid M and the X-Men are futilely trying to stop it, stop him, and he's just not having any of it. it. It's That's the stuff that planted the seeds for everything from ripping out Wolverine's adamantium to Onslaught and the Age of Apocalypse and like all that stuff that kind of carried X-Men through the 90s. And to me, because that's my era, I think of Chris Claremont starting adjectiveless X-Men as being like such a definitive thing. And so I have to associate that with Jim Lee. Mm-hmm. And probably you probably read those last few issues of him with Jim Lee exactly. and, Ar- and Art T-Bear and goddamn uh, Scott Williams doing those X-Men issues where it's like uh, Wolverine went to the 40. Wolverine was in the 40s with a child Black Widow and Captain America showed up. And right. I know you probably as a kid picked up those last few like two what, 270-something through the end of it, and then, boom, they cut it off and did the adjective list. Look, um, I'll just I'll just say this. You know, Jim Lee, yes, needed to find the right inker in Scott Williams, and definitely he was on a steep learning curve. Like, he, he was getting better every single issue. But that artwork in those first few issues of X-Men with Claremont, that holds up to this day. I mean, that shit is pretty beautiful. good. Flash pages of Magneto's face and, you know, the the fights that happen out in Asteroid M. Like, mm-hmm. I think some of it has become what we think of as like generic Jim Lee, a lot of stock poses and energy effects and things like that. But at the time, like you had never seen anything like that in a comic book. I mean, it was incredible. Yeah. It was very crisp. Yeah. That's a, you know, 
I don't know. The, I, it's interesting to see the uh, how art styles changed and stuff. Mm-hmm. I, you know who I might pick? Well, maybe this is a weird pick. You guys are probably going to give me shit for it. But uh, maybe John Romita Jr. I mean, that's really respectable because the Romita oh. Jr. run has so many cool things like uh, Storm beating up Callisto with no powers, I think, is, is in yep. that run. And again, that's a Claremont thing of like the Morlocks being just the concept of like, Okay, the I'll agree that the mutants I have allowed you and Marvel Comics have allowed you to follow are the pretty ones, the ones with the pretty privilege. Even Beast, Beast begin pussy, Nightcrawler begin pussy. You know what I'm saying? That there's no there's no beasts uh, going around on their own tentacles on the fucking X Men at that time. Yeah, and so Chris Claremont acknowledging that and going, okay. Let's go down underneath and see what the rest of mutantdom has to deal with. And oh my God, they're eating trash in the sewers and they got a rat king. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like, this is <laughs> awful. And so just the, the, the concept of the X-Men finding that out about mutant culture, you know what I'm saying? That was really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, Claremont brought so much of those interesting subtexts. I believe he also wrote God loves man kills. Mm-hmm. which was the first X-Men graphic novel and sort of branching out that central metaphor of like, Oh, the X-Men are outcasts from society. And there's obviously like a prejudice metaphor baked into it. You know, what are the many different ways that we can sort of push that within the books, even something like Genosha, like you talked about having mm-hmm. a, essentially an apartheid government that's all against mutants. Claremont, knew how to spin tales out of like a strong central premise. And I'll also agree with the, the Romita jr. Stuff. That was an interesting time as well, where Romita jr. Was really coming into his own as an artist and sort of discovering his style. And there's really strong art in a lot of those X-Men issues. Yeah, Mm, absolutely. And last things last, he is, I think the one who put the fine point on Magneto being Jewish and his oh, yeah. the whole all of that stuff and the whole Martin Martin Luther King and so-called Malcolm X metaphor, even though he never explicitly stated that ever. But the whole there are revolutionary people who want to fuck shit up and they hate because they were hated and you really can't hate on that. <laughs> and then there's some people who are frankly pretty and mm-hmm. want to believe that they can blend in with people and be on an equal level with them. As Ice Cube used to say, who the fuck are they to be equal to? But anyway. Um, there's always going to be people who want to assimilate with other motherfuckers for peace, quote unquote. And there's people who are like, fuck that, burn it all down. He really introduced that. Before that, M- Magneto was like, yeah, I'm twisting my mustache I don't have. And I got a helmet. You know what I mean? For, <laughs> for a lot of those. All the people. <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? There was a lot of that going on before Chris Claremont started writing Magneto. And Magneto is literally the best villain in Marvel if you don't count Doctor Doom. Yep. If Doctor Doom was somehow taken out of the running, Magneto Fair. is the best villain that they have, period. Fair. So, like, that's Claremont. That's Claremont shit right there. And, and I just to add on to that in the exact same vein, most of the shit you love about Wolverine was also Claremont. Like, oh, developing yeah. out the whole man with no past, Weapon X, what was going on, the experimentation on mutants... Like all that stuff, Claremont sort of took the bones of what Roy Thomas had laid down and, you know, turned that into a really fully fleshed character. 
And one day we're going to do a Larry Hama episode, but I just want to give Larry Hama his concurrent with Chris Claremont props, because I think that that's good to be doing because Larry Hama doing after Chris Claremont left the Wolverine solo book, Larry Hama taking over and doing what he did with GI Joe, kind of grabbing a guy, a product and kind of delving in even more. Cause Chris Claremont was really interested in keeping the mystery up. He was very interested in, um, the, the I have no memories jazz and 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 the whole uh, Alpha Berserker. Flight stuff. Yeah, he was uh, the Berserker Rage and the Alpha Flight stuff. He was very interested in all that, and he was kind of interested because Frank Miller was interested in the Japanese Bushido code shit. That he kind of liked that, but bro, Larry Hama was really about the man of mystery shit. The he's a cryptid across time shit. The fucking real like what was the program what was the team zero or whatever the fuck he was on with Maverick and all those losers. He really mined all that. Some of it was good. Some of it was really dumb, sure. but I really believe that he was the one who graduated Sabretooth him and Claremont in concert. Oh, okay. I believe yeah. graduated Sabretooth from guy who gets beat up by iron fist to real popular villain and the things. So I just want to give Larry Hama his props in this Claremont section, because along with him, he was a great worthy collaborator with helping to make Wolverine what we love today. And he really worked well with what Cl- Claremont had ru- had laid down. He didn't contradict anything Claremont laid down. He built upon it. They're both good guys in that way. Yeah. I also want to bring up one person just because now look, when I say this guy, I am not saying he it should count as some of the greatest, but it's more like, I don't know what is what is it when you add someone on who is like a extra honorable mention, an honorable mention, and that's Jerry Conway. Hmm. Um, he's done I think about runs of Spider Man that I really like because we're just mm-hmm. talking about stuff we like. He's done a bunch of runs of Spider Man that I like, so I just wanted to bring him up just because of that. Nothing more than that. I know he shouldn't be counted as the greatest writers. I know that. I just want to do it as an honorable mention as a guy whose comics I've read that I've enjoyed. Yeah, well, that's Jerry. Good. Yeah, Jerry Conway is still like I think alive and and doing uh, and doing graphic novels and stuff. And he really, yeah, he was like. There's so many great company man guys who got in and did seminal stuff that we're yeah. gonna be omitting. And I'll probably even put this in sometime earlier in the fucking or, episode because yeah. I think yeah, we're building to a good, crescendo yeah. with the goddamn Claremont stuff, so we could Sorry. end this one. Well, I, let me let me just I'll I'll put a point on the Jerry Conway thing. I I, I was just gonna say. I think Jerry Conway sort of fits in that same level of as Marv Wolfman, where it's like he just was grinding out work for decades, did some really great stuff, but just never transcended the medium. Like he was, you know, what are the cartoonist kayfabe guys sometimes derogatorily call a jobber. Like he just he, he delivered the work month in and month out and had some real bangers. Um, but yeah, never, never became a superstar. So yeah, that concludes our, uh, I guess we'll call it classic writers that we'll talk there you about. Go. I like yeah, that. that. That's the, that's the classic writer section. Uh, the next episode, we're going to uh, talk about people like uh, Warren Ellis, maybe some more people like Alan Moore, uh, Grant Morrison, some of the new school. Here's a, tease. Of those books. Here's a tease for you. Yeah, does Mark Miller count in there? Scott Snyder, Tom yeah. King, Jeff yeah. Johns. 
Do I mean, they count amongst James, greatest writers of all time? James Tinian? Uh, no. Now we're really stretching with James. No Bendis. disrespect. Vaughn? But... <laughs> Ooh, Bendis is another interesting conversation to have. Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. So, guys, thank you so much for listening to our podcast. Thank you so much for giving us five-star reviews. Thank you so much for joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the greatest pod. And thank you for buying Ron's album, On the Wing of yeah. a Dragon, available on all podcatchers. Thank you also for subscribing to the freaking Reboot It channel and the Greatest Pod YouTube channel and interacting with those channels and leaving us comments. All that is super fucking dope. It is. And, you know, if you're watching this on YouTube, uh, you know, subscribe. Thank you for listening to another intricately plotted, exceedingly erudite, wholly original episode of The Greatest... Ah!